You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here with your Murder Mystery World Tour. We are on to Masako Togawa's The Master Key, originally published in 1962 over in Japan. Yep. And the glorious land of Nippon. I have given you chapters one and two as it's well not as enough. the uh, as well it's, as the prologue. It's not enough. It's not enough. I'm gonna let you know right now. It is not I'm enough. not having any discussions about. Oh, I've given you enough to solve the mystery because this is not enough. <laughs> I have poured over these chapters over a hot stove. I don't know why it's on. You know, it doesn't matter. Point is, I this is ridiculous. What what is the mystery here? Flex, we'll talk about happening? we'll talk about that at the tail end of the uh-huh, show. Sure, okay. For now, I wanted to get into how lovely this book is at creating an atmosphere in absolutely say. no time at all. Yeah, we begin with a person being run over. Mm-hmm. Buy a truck. Yep. And you think to yourself, is this the murder? How could this possibly be the murder? It was so quick. And then all of a sudden you're following that person a few days and or hours before mm-hmm. as they carried a dead baby into a home for single women. Is it a baby? And oh my goodness. buried it underneath a bath and then cemented it there under yeah, the tiles. They specifically said the body will not decompose, which is haunting. It's grotesque. Um, it's great. It, it wouldn't even decompose in seven years. That's right. One might say. Because then we true. jump forward seven years to Miss Tojo. It's crazy. Yeah, then we have uh, we have a little flash and we talk about the police investigating the, mm-hmm. the, the truck crash. And they speak with the two receptionists uh-huh. at this home for single ladies. Who deliver us many clues. Yeah, neither of them neither of them say anything particularly of note uh-huh, whatsoever. Uh-huh, sure they don't. And uh, we also have a little aside about a mysterious American military officer. Oh my goodness. And the kidnapping of his young son, George. And we get far too many details. So I don't have any idea how these this man, this military man and his and his Japanese wife are related to the kidnappers, but mm-hmm. there is something going on there. They make a big deal out of how he was like, I'm sure that the kidnappers will keep their promise, even though they totally already killed the child. Unless that's not even the same child. We don't even know that for sure. It's crazy. It's a novel. This novel does not confirm or deny anything, and I hate getting a taste of my own medicine. I hate it. I hate it. It's driving me up the bath wall. Admittedly, we're only 30 pages through. Of, of around 200 in the copy that I'm reading. Terrible. And so far, Herds, we have absolutely no idea which is the murder we're meant to be solving. Yes. We have absolutely well, no detective yeah. in sight. We have absolutely no idea if or how any of these characters are tied to each other. No. Quite frankly, it's a mess. Mm. But the atmosphere is excellent. <laughs> so we're going to spend the next you know, half an hour talking about the atmosphere, are we? Van Dyne would be <laughs> so disappointed in I me. I know. He'd throw this novel right out. We spend so much time. I want to say I... The moment I knew that I was in for a ride with this book was when, uh, you know, we're obviously shunted into the thick of things with the first death, this accidental death mm-hmm. via truck driver where this, uh, this, this young lady with a red scarf is run over. But specifically the novel points out that, you know, this guy in the truck, he's thinking about getting home, he's in a rush, and maybe that glint of the red scarf reminds him of all the loves that he has in his home country. Like, <laughs> it's so left field, but it puts you in a very specific state of mind. Yes. And in in my you know perspective, it, it trains you 
to expect the unexpected. And as we say, there are no obvious connections between events. We haven't even necessarily seen a murder yet Mm -hmm. uh, on screen, but it is training you to expect these strange connections. I Um, think the point you made there about a specific state of mind is a perfect encapsulation of how this opening section works. Mm. We jump from character to character and get a very direct representation of how they perceive the world around. It it doesn't waste time characterizing the occupants in a given scene. It'll say, this is this character. Here's something about that we can identify. The receptionists are forgetful and kind of old. You know, we're we're given a very clear kind of perspective of these characters. But we also spend a lot of time just talking about how things look Mm -hmm. and kind of telling a story in the background. I think my favorite part is actually um, how we're, we're getting Tojo's perspective, but we're also hearing about the construction work outside and we get a very vivid, you know, it doesn't say, you know, my mind is frantic or the situation is frantic, but we get a very frantic depiction of this, this science experiment being set up of, you know, when they try and shift this building four meters to the side for Mm -hmm. whatever reason, um, will the water in our, in our glasses tip out of, out of the glass, which is such an absurd setup. First of all, before we continue, can I just say that, if you've never seen a building walk when they go to lift it up off its foundations and put it on big hydraulic it's feet great. or wheels to move it from one location to another, you should look that up on the internet because it's absolutely yeah. staggering. Yeah, and I mean, in the book, there's a huge crowd that's come to have a look at what's what's going on here. And so obviously this is partly just to like keep your best in the story and like keep things interesting, but also to obfuscate the real clues. But, you know, as characters are running around in the building, obviously committing crimes and murders, um, we're just we're also being told about this huge crowd and how the construction your manager is told to delay the move for thirty minutes and how frustrated his workers are. Even though you haven't given me a lot of space in this novel mm-hmm. to actually solve anything, and I don't know how many actual clues there are for the murder mystery, it is still an incredibly dense piece of work. Absolutely. Which I love. I think the most compelling thing to me about this particular stretch is that we, above all else, set up that there is a time bomb. Yep. There is this body in the basement, mm. the building is about to be moved, yep. and we see the characters come up at the end of part two and say, can we have the master key to the basement? I need to look for something. And we oh. can infer that they are looking for the body and have somehow found out about it. Yes, that's one piece of the puzzle. I mean, we'll, we'll get more into you know my, my solution or whatever, I guess, in part three, but yeah. There's several characters. There's also a character with a cat, and I'm not saying that the cat is the culprit or is going to lead us to the culprit, but I would not be surprised. I'm putting my all points. Chips on I'm the cat. putting all my chips on that cat. She's going to be like meow and like rub her leg up against the culprit, and that's how we're going to know that <laughs> that's the culprit. It's going to be cat hair at the crime scene. It's going to be great. Oh, my goodness. That would be ridiculous. The other thing that was really interesting about this stretch is that it starts with creating this atmosphere to look at this single home for girls and how it kind of fits into society or doesn't, as the case may be. Because the way that it frames it is that all of these women moved here sometime in the years after the war as just a safe home for single women where they didn't have to worry about being bothered by men and, you know, people weren't allowed to bring partners into the building or Mm -hmm. anything. So it was just a a, a safe space, basically. But but it's it's also added that that all of these characters have horrible dark secrets. All have great. horrible dark like, secrets. It's, it's not just that it's a safe place. Yeah. It's that it's a safe place to hide your dark past. Yeah. 
And and Perhaps they've, literally. they've all been there for so long that they're now old. This yeah. know, home for young girls is full of people who Elderly just people. haven't moved out. And yeah. that means that basically you've got the worst of them left there. It is mm-hmm. kind of implied. In my mind, the theme is that like these are the, the people that are left, the people that like couldn't move on and get better lives and like yeah. overcome their traumas and their problems. So this is a real show. There's obviously some level of social criticism going on here that we haven't really had the chance to unpack. And I'll, I'll look forward to getting into that in the next couple of weeks. But the other thing that's really annoying, uh, at least as a Western reader, is that Masako Togawa seems to have largely been involved in the queer community uh, in works that haven't been translated. And I think that's kind of unfortunate because crime fiction authors, because they're tied in with, I guess, the dregs, you know, the murderers and whatnot, they're very aware and engaged with social issues in how they write. And it's the same over in Japan. We've had a very interesting lens on social issues. But as we covered with the Honjin murder case, as we covered uh, with Inspector Imanishi Investigates, there's a very masculine lens to those social issues. That's not to say that they're not there, because there definitely are some fantastic female crime fiction authors over in Japan. The trouble is just that because they don't have that international recognition, it's very difficult for us to talk about them. And that's a huge shame. And I hope that going through this book will be an insightful look into a different take on Japanese crime fiction that we don't normally get here in the West. Mm, Looking forward to it. We are discussing Masako Togawa's The Master Key, chapters one, two, and of course the intro. And we'll be back with more of that in just a second. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex here with you this evening, and I am joined by Karen Sullivan, the head-on show of Arenda Books, an independent publisher from over in the UK who has a particular focus on bringing over a cross of genre and literary fiction that Herds and I have been absolutely loving. And Karen, it is so lovely to have you on the show. Welcome. Ah, thank you. So the first thing I wanted to touch on is Arenda Books. It's such a small team, and yet you have such a prolific output, such a, a wonderful community that you've built online around the publisher. How do you go, you know, from the ground up and build something like that as a small publisher? Well, I set out really to build something like a brand that people would recognize because obviously it's a hugely flooded market and mm. it's difficult, as you say, to to make a mark in any way. So what I, I wanted to publish sort of, as we say, readable, unforgettable, beautiful books. So, so books that people are going to remember. And the idea was, is that people would become engaged with the list. And although we, we do sort of predominantly crime thrillers, I wanted them to feel confident enough to pick up um, whatever book came next, regardless of its genre or provenance. And that's really worked, actually, because we do have sort of a lot of anomalies on our list, books that don't fit necessarily into a genre. Um, And we we publish a lot of translated fiction. So a lot of um, authors from, I guess, 14 countries we publish now. Um, including Australia and New Zealand, <laughs> which are not translation. <laughs> um, but but the, the idea is to demystify it. So if we sort of slot those in with more familiar names, then people are more likely to pick them up because translated fiction still does have a little bit of a, a reputation for being highbrow or something that the you know you have to be really educated to enjoy it, which is absolutely not the case. Yeah, for sure. 
uh, on the note of, you know, it doing well, congratulations on winning the CWA Publishers Dagger last year. That was really exciting to see, especially with all of the other huge names that were on that list. So that was really fantastic. But I think the other really fascinating thing, particularly given that we're in the middle of looking at translated works, particularly Japanese at the moment on Death of the Reader, is how you find all of these translated works and qualify those books to put in that lineup, which you've made so competitive. Well, we have a lot of meetings at book fairs with publishers from around the world and sort of associations like Norla, which is looks after the whole of Norwegian literature and they present stuff to us. But as you say, I mean, there's a lot out there. I don't speak, I mean, I don't read any other language apart from French and that even that's really bad. Um, <laughs> I get the gist of a story, but probably none of the nuance. Um, but I think, I think I would say that I publish instinctively. So like, here's a really good example of, of how I found an author. So I was at Bloody Scotland uh, uh, Crime Festival in 2015, I guess, and I was playing football for England against the Scottish crime writers. And on my team was this Icelandic author called Ragnar Jonasson. And he came up to me afterwards and said, look, I'm a, a great crime writer. I've never been published anywhere else. Will you look at my book? And I and I thought, well, okay. So he described what it was basically, which it said in Siglifjord, set on one side by the sea, the other side by mountains with only one tunnel that goes through. And when it snows, it's closed. So the perfect locked room mystery. Um, the second point was that he had translated 14 Agatha Christie books into Icelandic from the age of 17. So I thought, okay, he's got story sense. I looked at the sample translation, which was awful, absolutely awful. <laughs> no. Had this feeling that mm. that there was something there, so I I bought two books, and he has gone on to sell maybe four million copies. You know, I take my authors on the road. I come up with our marketing plans. I do the first edits with them, the structural edits. So I have to be able to get along with someone. And if I meet someone casually at a festival, and we have fun, or you know, there's some, there's a connection, then that's a really good first step. And I think a lot of mm. publishers would say the same. Well, in that case, I kind of wanted to pivot over. And I've done something unfathomable and honestly, frankly, embarrassing and sent you a bit of the book that we're writing on Death of the Reader this year. We started this entire thing because we thought, hey, we've been poking fun at mysteries. We might as well write our own, make a mess of it and kind of bring people along for the ride so they can find out a bit about the mistakes that they then don't have to make. And the first thing I wanted to talk about is that we are doing this in a format where we're probably going to be posting chapters serially online. And that means that it's up available publicly for people to read. If someone was to bring you a script and ask you to publish it that had been up on the internet, freely available for months before you even laid your eyes on it, how intense is the heart attack from the publisher's side about that? I would probably be unlikely to publish it. Mm -hmm. uh, just because, I mean, one of the things that you want to do when you're publishing a book is create a buzz and a build up and a what could this be? Yeah. So little bits like sentences or or that kind of thing can tempt readers. But if the whole thing's up there, you, I mean, even if you have a lot of supporters, they're going to feel like they've seen it all, even if they haven't seen it yeah. all. So you're going to undermine that whole um, buildup, which mm. is which is kind of really integral to the first stage of the publishing process. I get a lot of submissions from authors who, you know, have said they've been really badly published. And 
And yeah, there, there's a great book for sure, but I, but it's been done. You can't do it again um, with yeah. huge success. You can't get enough people on board. There has to mm. be a, a bit of a mystery to a mystery. Funny that. Obviously, with so many people posting their things online and blogs and how accessible it is, it can be really tempting. So what would be other ways that you would suggest, you know, obviously you have your beta readers, you have, you know, just letting small snippets out online. You know, how, how can people find these communities to actually get these scripts looked over? Well, I, okay. Well, there's a, there's a few stages here. The first one is that you want to send it to, to readers. So these can be your friends. Mm. I mean, ultimately you want your book to be enjoyed by people that read books. So if you ha- don't worry about their qualifications, because that doesn't matter. Readers don't have qualifications. Mm. They want to enjoy a book. So get some feedback from people like that. And bear in mind that everybody has their own taste. So it's, you know, the things that some people don't like aren't necessarily going to be an issue. Yeah. The second thing is then is there are lots of um, editorial consultancies. If you're really stuck, um, I mean, a couple of my authors run, you know, do editing on the side. Um, and that's what you're looking for. There is not a line by line thing. You want a structural edit at yeah. that point. You want someone who's going to say, well, I really like this story, except for that. Why do you need this plot line here? And this character doesn't need to be here. And how about you flip it? So this starts mm. at the beginning. And then you get your story in really tight shape before you, I would actually think about doing that before you send it out for people to read. Yeah. I imagine that's been super important over the past year with COVID, obviously not being able to go to as many in-person festivals, you know, using social media. But I I guess to to kind of round this out, you've had the chance to read over the script that we sent you here from Death of the Reader. We've titled it The Cauldron. It's it's in shabby shape. We haven't even named the main character of the novel yet. Is there anything in that novel that you wanted to grill us about, that, that you as a publisher would come back and say, my goodness, boys, what is going on here? Okay, well, when I read it, first of all, I mean, without the absence of a blurb, I probably wouldn't know what I was going into. So mm. that would, I mean, that puts me at a disadvantage anyway. But it's clearly some kind of futuristic, speculative, mm-hmm. possibly science fiction novel. And it, to do that successfully, you have to bring the reader on board immediately. They have to understand when this is, mm-hmm. what world we're talking about. And you didn't do that. So I, I was reading along thinking there's a spider behind the water. Yep. Talking spider. Mm -hmm. So when you're writing this kind of book, you instantly have to bring the reader on board, create a world, a believable world, even if it's not real, if you know what I mean. And and so that they feel at comfortable and at home. Yeah. I was lost, entirely lost. And of course, I know know now that you overwrote on purpose. Mm -hmm. You did the 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 absolutely tell not show absolutely yeah i think one one interesting thing and this has been something that herds and i will definitely discuss as we get further into the year with this project but we hate tell not show so much from a mystery perspective like it, it is our arch nemesis and if once you get a chance uh, you listening at home to look over the script you'll see there's so much of it there's so much of it and i think part of that is for us because we're sculpting this world and also because we're trying to communicate with each other as we're writing different bits of this we're kind of overdoing it on the way in and you know kind of have a bit of a process to it because you know writing a book between two people and i'm sure michael stanley uh, which is one of the authors that you have on your list who've written uh, the Detective Kubu series. The prequels just come out on that. They can definitely attest to how difficult it is at in, at the first outset trying to communicate between two people with different ideas on what we're writing. Exactly. I have another one. Um, this is another team, My Nordic Noir Stars. 
So it's Jörn Lierhorst and Thomas Enger who have written this uh, series set in Oslo. Yeah. And it's They've written together too. And mm. one is a journalist and one is a police officer. And their two um, characters are a police officer and a journalist. So they play to their strengths, I think. Um, and that's, that's I, just, I guess, if you're going to write with someone, I think you've got to do that. You've got to decide in advance, don't you? In the case of your story or your book so far, um, I, I imagine none of you has lived in whatever century this is set. No, I, I completely agree. And I'm glad to hear that the things that we've been discussing behind in the scenes are the kind of things that you've picked on as well. It means that we're at least self-aware of the mistakes we've made, which is always a comforting place to be. <laughs> But uh, Karen, it has been such a pleasure having you on Death of the Reader, and thank you uh, from the, the deep bottom of my heart for being the first guinea pig we've had on the show in this format. Oh, huge pleasure, anytime. Alrighty, you are listening to Death of the Reader. We are discussing Masako Togawa's The Master Key, and we will be back with more of that in just a second. You're listening to 2SER 107.3. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here. We are talking Masako Togawa's The Master Key intro up to chapter two. And Herds. Mm-hmm. Flex. This mystery. Is unsolvable. It's unsolvable. It's impossible. But I'm going to tell you something <laughs> right now, Herds. Okay. What's this? I was told when I when I look for this novel that it is a fair play mystery novel, a Honkaku mystery novel, uh, which means traditional in Japanese and... I agree on some level. I think it does, to the letter, more or less follow all of Knox's rules. Sounds good and to me. And arguably also follows all of Van Dyne's. Even the appendices? Uh, no comment. Aha! The cat's still on the table! <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Have I nailed? I hope that that's really what's going on here. Anyway, continue. Flex. <laughs> anyway. The, the interesting thing to me here. Okay is that it is a novel that takes such a different approach to how it does things. As we were saying in the beginning, Soji Shimada's The Tokyo Zodiac Murders is extremely front-loaded. Uh-huh. This book is the Back-loaded. antithesis of front-loaded. Yeah, okay. No, I, I mean, look, let's be clear. I I don't, I, I think you expect to be a bit more shocked when you said it follows all of Knox's rules. I don't doubt that it follows Knox's rules. However, the way in which it, it follows the rules, it's more like a, a maze then it is a, a, you know, here are the 10 rules and this is how we- Sure, that's an interesting analogy to take. Because one of the things that I've noticed and something that I've been trying to piece together is is time. Mm -hmm. The the novel isn't 100% clear about when things take place and it mentions, like, there's one phrase where it basically- not one phrase, in, in chapter two, it basically mentions a whole bunch of different events and, you know, how long ago they happened- but doesn't go into any detail about no. them. And it also so. isn't entirely clear that chapter two takes place seven years after the other yeah. bits before it, because it says, you know, that uh, Chicago Ueda waited there for seven yes. years. And you're like, I'm, so is this I'm going foreshadowing to, or is well, this a I'm time going jump? To, I'm going to have to solidly infer in this case, it is seven years after yeah. because a, there's no mention of Ueda's, you know, com- companion mm-hmm. uh, and B, I, I I think it doesn't make any sense for the burying of the body to have occurred after this incident. That yeah. seems strange. Um, and also I think she's dead. Uh, <laughs> so, so like we haven't seen a body, but uh, we have a character come down from the fifth floor. I'm going to grab, I'm going to grab her Which name. Which is where Chicago lives. Her name is Michio Yamura. 
She comes down from the fifth floor. She says that Miss Away's door is open. Her water has spilled, which is strange because the building hasn't even been moved yet. Yes, all of the residents of the building have gotten yeah, cups sorry. of water and filled them up yes. to the brim uh, because the construction men have promised them that they won't even be able to spill a glass with how smooth the building moving the, will be. There's a character named Miss Shimoda who has said, oh, let's play a fun game, everybody. Let's all lock ourselves up in our rooms so that we can't see where anybody else oh, is. Such a murder mystery bait. So I love it. Stupid. I love it. If it turns out that she actually has nothing to do with the crime, that'd be fantastic, that it was like a, a seed planted by the real criminal because there definitely is, there are seeds being planted. Oh, totally. Um, one of the details that I especially pinged on was that we're told that the construction work began three months ago. And then in another completely separate piece of, of internal monologue for Miss Tojo, it says, well, it was two months ago that the master key was stolen. And six months before the current day is when this like strange cult guy and his little girl who dances a bunch, who I don't know what's going on there. I'm sure we'll find out. They came into the building. And I'm sure that those three events are all connected. And in, in my opinion, the, the kind of what we're supposed to infer here is that when the construction worker said, we're going to move the building, somebody said, oh, no, I better get that master key so that when they go to move the building, I can enact my genius plan, <laughs> um, which in, which indicates to me, of course, that this is a planned operation. And so accomplices uh, are probably going to be varied, if not plentiful. But, yeah, there's a lot going on here. The, I haven't even talked about the prologue and the three hints we're given. Um, one, it is interesting. They are called the three hints. Yes, and the third hint I have nothing to do with. The first two hints seem pretty straightforward. The first one being that there is somebody watching Miss Ueda placing the body in the bathroom, which is is going to be blackmail of some sort, one way or the other. Outrageous. Probably. Uh, the second clue is about the guest book that, you know, we didn't actually see the companion sign in mm -hmm. and that they look like a lady and that's fine, which is supposed to hint that there's maybe more people who look like ladies and are not in the building. We'll, we'll see. We, we don't know. We'll see. We'll see. The third hint, however, I'm really stuck on. We learned that there is an American military man who is posting about the kidnapping of his son, George. That's right. And he's only posting about it in the Japanese yes. newspapers. My assumption with this is that the, the clue is supposed to be that he knows the kidnappers personally. I don't know what the connection is there between the kidnappers and this this craft man. Well, it is quite clearly implied, in case Hertz hasn't made implied. it clear, yep. that uh, the body that Chicago Ueda and her companion buried underneath the bath that we mentioned earlier is the son of this American military officer. We don't know that for certain, but I'm going to assume that's the case for now. Mm -hmm. um, I suppose it's also possible, now that I think about it, that the, uh, the, the gentleman masquerading as a, as a woman... Is George? That's also possible. I don't know, Herds. It's a very interesting case that we have here. I'm going to tell you now. We're not quite at the end of the episode, but <laughs> I am going to give you all the way up to chapter seven. Oh, that's so many chapters. Of eight. I better get it right. This is this <laughs> is because, as you say, this book is backloaded. It's, we are it's basically cr it's going to the end, and I am asking you to solve it right before the reveal. So, so what you're telling me is I should just read chapter seven and make my deductions based on the one chapter because everything's in that chapter. No. Is the cat in that chapter? It's happening. What's its name? Mr. Murderer? Come on. <laughs> Got him. Okay. Make your point. <laughs> but I think the interesting thing with this one is that it takes a long time for this information to come out for you to solve things. So you're going to have to pay attention the whole way through. Uh-huh. You're not going to be allowed to miss any single detail. Oh, good. And here's what I'm going to offer I, and you, And then Hertz. I get one point. <laughs> no, no. Here's what I'm going to offer you, Herds, yeah. is that there are five points on the table for <laughs> next week. Uh -huh. I'm not going to tell you what those points are. But there are five points on the table up to a maximum of three. 
You can't so even you, tell you what one point you is have for. Plenty Not of even chances. one. No. Okay. There's no leading sure. the witness here. We have it's to garbage. decide based on the novel alone. Is this a fair play mystery? That is your challenge, Herds. You are the okay. guinea pig in this experiment. I, okay. I'm Suffering at the altar of Masako Togawa. Sure. It sounds fine to me. <laughs> but the one question I have for you this week, Herds. So are we you going to tell me if I get a point? Potentially three murders. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We have uh, Chicago Ueda. We have the child, uh-huh. and uh, we also maybe have the kidnapping of George if that's a separate case. Which one of them is the murder in this murder mystery? I I think because you're asking the question. Uh huh. Oh, I hate this. <laughs> I, I I don't I don't think it's the the gentleman with the truck. There's too many variables is the thing. There's too many because variables. Because we get a discussion of the truck driver and what they're thinking, but we don't actually get to see from their perspective. That's very strange. We, we don't get to see, you know, their exact thoughts. We hear they're coming well, from a temple. Maybe we'll find them later. Maybe to... the cat was driving the truck. I mean, that would be, that would be excellent. <laughs> if the cat's driving the truck, Flex, I get all the points. That's just how it works. I, no, um, I agree with that. If the cat is cat driving murders, the truck, you get all of five the points. points. No, no, no. Not just the five points. You get all of the points. <laughs> Infinity points. All, of the, sh- all um, of the points that we've had from every book so far, if the cat is driving the truck, you can have the lot. I'm going to say that I, I don't think it's George. I don't think that George was killed. I think that either George died accidentally or, well, you, you're oh, destroying my brain. I am here. enjoying this so much. I will, I'll let you know while Herds is, is thinking over uh, there on the other side of this table that when I got to this point in the story, I had a very clear idea of what I thought was going on. And uh-huh. it's interesting seeing you struggle so much. I, I will concede to you. I didn't know what this mystery was going to be like as I went forwards, and I was proven wrong at many points. But there is uh-huh. one thing in this opening passage where I think you have all the information. Oh, well, thank you very much. I'm glad that you know everything and I know nothing, and that's how it's, that's how it's going to be. Exactly. I'm I'm going to say that the murder in the beginning in the prologue is is a murder. That's what I'm going to settle on. I'm going to say that Mr. Wader has uh, is is collecting an alibi of some sort. Fascinating. That's what's going on there. That's, I'm sticking with that. Alrighty. And I'm not sure what's going on with the kid, but I don't think that it is the murder we are meant to solve. I think that'll be incidental Fair enough. or accidental. I'm going with the truck kill. Well, Herds, oh. it's been a pleasure joining you here this. on this episode of Death of the Reader, discussing Massacre Togawa's The Master Key, the intro chapters one and two Herds, I'm sorry to make you a guinea pig for this experiment. I I do genuinely feel great about it, uh, but I still apologize. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing how you go with solving the rest of it up to and including Chapter 7. I've already lost the point, so it's only uphill from here. (laughs) We will be back with more of the Master Key next week. You're listening to Death of the Reader here on 2SER 107.3.